2: You'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders. Was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts.
0: You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD Will the Drill and TJ2. <coughs>
3: Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I'm your host, Eldie. Along with me for the ride today, riding solo is Mr. Will the Thrill. Well,
1: I'm not riding solo because I'm riding with you, but to that I say greetings and salutations. And I'm drinking out of my New York Giants Super Bowl champions 2012. We just made the playoffs. That is all. Wishful thinking. As a Giants fan, it's all we got. <laughs>
3: All right. Well, we're just gonna jump right into this. I will like to say that Will is the only other co-host that I have today because I know you guys know about TJ2 having a at this point, is it a toddler? Because it's not a newborn. Is it a toddler? Uh, I
1: think infant.
3: Infant? Okay. I believe well, so. well, his his sweet baby girl, angel sent from heaven above, who we love more than life itself is turning one and so he, he cannot Yay. be here today because he's preparing for her birthday so we're so excited about that
1: i know and we're gonna get to see her it's gonna be amazing
3: yeah it's gonna be awesome but uh turning to uh things that suck oh, uh, we there's a long a list very long list 2023 was talking to 2020 and 2016 <clears> and <throat> he was like hold my absinthe uh because we have a long list of people that we're we we don't have time to talk about them all, but I'm just gonna list them off today, the day that we're recording this, we lost David Crosby. And I know that my brother's probably gonna want to talk about him in the next episode. So we will hold off on combos about this, but it sucks. We also lost Van Connor, the 17th. So two days prior to this recording. And then one that's actually kind of close to my heart, we lost CJ Harris. And he was a contestant on American Idol who passed away of the same thing from what I understand Lisa Marie Presley passed of just three days prior to his death. We lost her on January the 12th and we also lost Robbie Bachman and we lost Jeff Beck all since we've recorded last. This is the last nine days of this year.
1: I was going to say, it is January 19th, people. And that is the list. It's unbelievable.
3: Prior to this that we didn't get to hit on was Gordy Harmon of The Whispers. We also oh, wow. lost Alan Ranke. And we lost Gangsta Boo on the first. So this has just been a bad year. This is turning into a massacre. It's like 2016 all over again. Yeah. Yeah. Sucks out loud. So
1: well, I hope you have brighter things to talk about because this is a downer.
3: Oh. I really don't. Sorry. Uh, well, I mean, we're talking about musicals. So and in other news, we did get to go see Town. That's a little bit of a bright star. You really liked it. I have
1: had Road to Hell stuck in my head since that Sunday matinee, which is not a bad thing.
3: It's not. Those were some of the best voices I have ever heard on tour. The
1: guy who played Hermes was incredible.
3: Eurydice's, the girl who played Eurydice's. Was, oh, she was great. She had a range, man. She, there was no weak link in this show. So, if you are a fan of Broadway, which I kind of hope you are if you're listening to a series on Stephen Sondheim, one would imagine this is not a bad tour to catch. So, definitely, I will say this I loved the show. I don't know if I would see it again. Yeah, I feel like
1: I saw it, got the t shirt, had a great time. You know, the music. No, we didn't stuck get the t shirt. We
3: got, we got the mugs. We
1: got We got a mug. We got a mug. Yeah. Uh, I think it's only in Atlanta for like a week, though, and then it moves on.
3: Yep. Me and Will the Thrill are on a quest. I'll going to call it's it a quest. a quest. Yeah. It's it's a quest. To see 12 shows this year. So we're doing good, starting off strong. We'll probably see Riverdance next.
1: <laughs> That's right. Cause that also comes to the Fox. So, yeah. Hey, w- I've always believed that if you are in the lobby at intermission with a drink in your hand, you've arrived.
3: I'm going to agree with you.
1: Yeah. No So, listen.
3: Let's talk about somebody else who's arrived and then left the party. Mm. And that is Stephen Sondheim. So, welcome to Stephen Sondheim, part two. Sondheim. So, we're just going to jump right in. He completed a show called All the Glitters, which was the first assignment that Oscar Hammerstein had given to him. And I have to remember it's Hammerstein because it's Stein like the glass, not Stein, Bernstein, Bernstein. So if you caught that last week, it was because I kept questioning myself. I'm like, am I saying this right?
1: But I think (laughs) if you said Stein, people would be okay with it. It's not like, you know, complete bastardization of the name.
3: But if I say Rogers and Hammerstein, it comes out correctly. But if I just say Hammerstein, like that Mm -hmm. sounds right to me. It's terrible. I'm sorry. So, Like Mannheim
1: Steamroller. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So if you caught that. Fully on you. So if you'll remember, Oscar had given him the assignment of the four different shows that he wanted him to complete. And so he finished that and he thought it was good enough that he should take it to Mr. Porter. And I'm sure that the audience is out there like, what Porter are you talking about? Yeah, Hmm. no, it, it was Cole Porter. Porter had just come off of his latest success, Kiss Me, Kate, which was a triumph that he achieved at the age of 58. Side note about Kiss Me, Kate. That was one of the shows that was running on Broadway when 9-11 happened. And I remember that that cast tried so hard to save that show. That was one of the things that just was lost to us during that time was was a lot of Broadway shows ended up closing. There's
1: nothing you could do. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Now, just as a note, Cole Porter had been in constant pain for over a decade. Both of his legs had been shattered in a riding accident. And I couldn't find out what kind of accident it was.
1: Did you say riding or writing? Because was it like, was he writing?
3: I'm like, <laughs> possibly a horse or a motorcycle. I don't know. I, I'm going to tell you, we've had a busy week. And that was okay. one of the things I forgot to Google. So the Porters had an estate in Williamstown. And David Bryant asked if he could bring his most talented students to meet him. And of course, Stephen would be one of the most talented. Mrs. Bryant recalled that Steve would play some bits of music and Cole would come to the piano. He'd pick it up right away. And then he'd go, Wouldn't it sound a little bit better this way? Stephen Hmm. said he learned from studying Porter as well as Oscar. And that's one thing that Stephen does really well. When he wants to learn something, he will take the time to absorb it and learn it and make it the best possible. Like he takes advantage of these moments where he gets to meet these giants.
1: He's like a lifelong student. I mean, and... The actual sense of the word, not like people say, I'm oh, a lifelong student. It's like, yep, of your mother's basement. No, he actually <laughs> continued to learn. And, and it's even evident later on when he meets more contemporary you know, individuals in the theater, he kind of takes notes from them. So, and, But also,
3: he he's also free giving with his time, which we'll get into in later episodes. He, I think he realized what he had to offer and would pass that down as well. So I just, I think he had some of the best mentors and he didn't use that in vain.
1: Agreed. It's like a perfect storm of wanting to learn and running into the best people to learn from.
3: Yeah, he just got lucky that way. So he learned from Porter as well as Oscar the necessity of having a kind of rhythm in one's head when one begins to write lyrics, even if the music hasn't begun to take shape itself. The sooner the words and the music begin to intertwine and reinforce each other, the closer to the ideal would be made. So basically, it was have this rhythm this kind of beat in your head while you're writing the lyrics. So if you don't have the music, you still have some kind of language that you're working with.
1: Which isn't that the eternal debate, what comes first, the music or the lyrics?
3: Yeah. And in Stephen's case, it would be the lyrics.
1: I don't know. It's almost the music based on what you just said. He has a rhythm in his head and he's kind of moving with that. I, I don't know. It could be argued the other way.
3: I don't know. But if you if you can hear a lyricless Stephen Sondheim piece and know it's Sondheim, but you can also take away the music and you hear something like Mm. a line spoken. And you're like, that's a Sondheim line. Yeah. So I just think it's, it's, it's tricky with him because he's just so prolific. So he's still in school at this point. And in the class election of 45 and 50, Stephen was voted among the most versatile The most brilliant, the most original, and the most likely to succeed, and the one who had done the most for Williams.
1: Leave some of the rest for us, Stephen. Leave some of the rest for
3: us. And Stephen enjoyed his stay at Williams, but the final year became really tedious for him. He suddenly looked around and he thought, what the hell am I doing here? He said he had done everything he wanted to do and nothing was standing in between him and a full career except for two years of military service. He applied for the Air Force, was excluded because he had childhood hay fever and asthma. But he won the Hubbard Hutchinson Prize, a two-year fellowship to study music. The stipend was $3,000 a year, which compared pretty well to the average yearly salary for an assistant professor of about $3,500 and was adequate if he didn't need to pay for rent. And so for two more years, he slept in his father's dining room. He is resourceful too.
1: A dining room, huh? Hope they threw a bed in there and he wasn't just on the table.
3: <laughs> Steven, get up. It's breakfast time.
1: <laughs> you got to move.
3: One of his professors stated that Stephen had made it very clear that he wasn't planning to write a symphony and wasn't planning to write an opera. He wanted to be the best on Broadway. That was his focus. Mm. And by some extraordinary piece of luck, which he seems to be full up on. He had already met or soon would meet the man who would be a pivotal figure in his life for the next 30 years and the most important single figure in his career possible. That man was Harold Prince. Do you know that name? You should know that name.
1: I'm I'm struggling to place it though. And I know I know it. I just can't think. I'm thinking Harold Pinter, but that's not it. No, No,
3: he'll be the producer of things like West Side Story, a funny thing happened on the way to the Forum Ah. Company, Follies, A Little Night Music. Uh, Pacific Overtures and Sweeney Todd, which we just watched the other night, just to catch us back up on them.
1: My favorites on him, in my, my humble opinion.
3: He believes that they were first introduced by a mutual friend named Mary Rogers at the opening of Rogers and Hammerstein's South Pacific in the spring of 49. The story is that they subsequently met for coffee in Times Square and declared their joint determination to become the next Rogers and Hammerstein. Mm-hmm. Princess it wasn't in Times Square, but at a Walgreens. <laughs> I mean, on, the, on the corner of 57th and Broadway. And he said, I didn't say that we were the logical heirs. I would have never said that. I did say with a little luck, we'd be part of the future of musical theater.
1: Wait a second. Wasn't it uh, Dwayne Reed? Was that not an option? I feel like it should be.
3: <laughs> oh, man. No, it was just a bagel shop slash bodega. They had I mean, really good salami. I believe it. You know, it was that same one that your son threw up on. No, that was the counter in Times Square. I remember that, and I went to the Dwayne Reed to try
1: to rectify. It. That's a story for another time, folks. <laughs> Thanks for coming.
3: See <laughs> All yeah. right, thank you for listening to Rock and Roll Heaven. Take <laughs> well, there's a <laughs> musical connection because we didn't we see Newsies in that same trip. We did see Newsies on well, that, that same trip. Yep. Mm-hmm. Anytime we go to New York, we will be seeing a, a Broadway show. Mm,
1: that's fair.
3: In the summer of 1953. Oscar introduced 23-year-old Stephen to George Oppenheimer, a playwright and screenwriter. Uh, Sondheim recently completed his fellowship with Milton Babbitt and was looking for a job. Oppenheimer was looking for an assistant to help write a new television series and hired Sondheim for $300 a week, although Sondheim had never written a professional script before. He moved to Los Angeles to work on the series Topper, Oh, Topper. I actually have a connection to Topper. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the documentary that I did on the piece of art that's on the wall of LAVC, The Freeway Lady? That I do. That is actress Lillian Bronson. And Lillian Bronson was oh, actually nice. in an, three episodes of Topper.
1: I thought so, I was going to say, like, Kent Twitchell was like a PA getting people sandwiches for that
3: story. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. He knew one of the uh, the actors in it. And I would look at her anytime I went to school.
1: I think it's a great mural.
3: Yeah. So it's based on a series of movies about an uptight banker, Cosmo Topper. And there were ghosts in it, but only he could see the ghosts?
1: Yeah, it's almost like Beetlejuice-esque. I think it's like Cary Grant and uh, I can't remember, but... They die and they realize that they're dead. It's, yeah, it's kind of like yeah. you just ask. It's, it's comedic.
3: Yeah, so it's George and Marion Kirby, and the Kirbys would often try to get Cosmo to loosen up and enjoy life because, of course, you know, they were dead. More often than not, they would complicate it. So Sondheim actually wrote 10 episodes on his own and a similar number with Oppenheimer. Topper premiered on October 9th, 1953, and Sondheim stayed in Los Angeles for about six months until he'd saved enough money for an apartment in New York City, so no more sleeping in his father's dining room what he did what he would devour in 1940s 1950 films he called cinema his basic language and his film knowledge got him through the sixty four thousand dollar question contestant tryouts but yeah. i couldn't find anything about whether or not he won or not or if he even got on the show
1: uh, I, I think that'd be more notable if he did win so my inclination is he somehow did not uh did not place in that running
3: yeah don't think he got on the show so okay,
1: nope, sorry Stephen.
3: But here's something really funny is that uh, he actually really disliked movie musicals. Hmm. He liked things like Citizen Kane, Grapes of Breath, A Matter of Life and Death. Studio directors like uh, Michael Kurtz and, and Ro Walsh were heroes of his. They went from movie to movie to movie and every third movie was good and every fifth movie was great and there wasn't hmm. any cultural pressure to make art. Hmm. At age 22, Sondheim had finished the four shows requested by Oscar. Jules and Philip Epstein's Front Porch in Flatbush was unproduced at the time. It was being chopped around by Lem Ayers. Ayers approached Frank Lozier about another composer who had turned him down. Ayers and Sondheim met as ushers at a wedding. (laughs) And Ayers commissioned Sondheim to write three songs for this unproduced show. Julius Epstein flew in from California and hired Sondheim, who worked with him in California for four or five months. After eight auditions for backers, half the money that was needed was raised. The show was retitled Saturday Night, and it was intended to open up during the 1954-1950 Broadway season. However, Ayers died of leukemia in his early 40s, so the rights transferred to his widow Shirley. And due to her hmm. inexperience, the show did not continue as planned. It opened off Broadway in the year 2000.
1: That, wow, okay. Yeah,
3: yeah. It took about 50 years.
1: <laughs> <So> only,
3: <laughs> only 50 imagine. years. Sondheim would later say, I don't have an emotional reaction to Saturday Night at all, except fondness. It's not bad stuff for a 23 year old. There are some obvious things that embarrass me so much as in the <laughs> lyrics. The mixed mixed accents, the obvious jokes, but I decided to leave it. It's my baby picture, and you don't touch up a baby picture. You're a baby. <laughs> after oh, okay. returning, yeah, I, I'm going to start using that. Why don't you touch up your pictures as a 43-year-old woman? Because it's my baby picture. You don't touch up baby pictures. I'm a child. <laughs> Come on now. Uh, after returning to New York City, he wrote an incidental music for the play The Girls of Summer. There's a guy here that I'm going to butcher his name and I apologize, but I think it's Bert Schellenlove, invited Sondheim to a party. Sondheim right before him and didn't know anybody else. But then he saw a familiar face, Arthur Lorenz, who had seen one of the auditions of Saturday Night and they began talking. Arthur told him that he was working on a musical version of Romeo and Juliet with Leonard Bernstein. Bernstein, Bernstein. Leonard
1: Bernstein. Look, Michael Stipe says it that way. That's what we're going with.
3: <laughs> okay. Leonard Bernstein. But they needed a lyricist. Betty Common and Adolph Green, who are supposed to write the lyrics, were under contract in Hollywood. And he said that although he was not a big fan of Sondheim's music, he enjoyed the lyrics from Saturday night and that he could audition. Sondheim met Leonard Bernstein the following day, played for him, and Bernstein said that he would let him know. The composer wanted to write the music and lyrics, but after consulting with Oscar, Bernstein told Sondheim that he could write the music later. <coughs> so he didn't get to write the music. Mom, mom. One of the reasons why he wanted help with writing the lyrics was because he realized that the emphasis was being placed on dance as a vehicle for telling the story, which meant there was a great deal more of music that was required of him than originally expected. He was also in the middle of writing Candide, which he had begun oh, in 1954, which by the way, Glitter and Be Gay from Candide. If you can hear one great version of that, you'll understand why Candide has gotten a bunch of revivals.
1: And yet it's a show I always forget about. I never remember Candide.
3: Yeah, I remember it at the Tony's, the year that it got revived. And I can't remember who was... who. I think it won the year that it was revived. And I remember who... (laughs) You delivered it was birded at Peter's. Nice. The reason why I was bringing up Glitter and Be Gay is it's this beautiful, hilarious, operatic song. And if you can hear Kristen Chennawa's version, <clears throat> I don't know how she does what she does. She's ridiculous. She really is. She's, she's insane. Her talent, <clears throat> they're, oh, she's amazing. I don't want to diminish anybody else's talent, but she's got more talent in her pinky than I've had in my entire life. (laughs) But he was collaborating on Candide with Lillian Hellman. And they had this idea that he'd be able to dash off, work on the show and be back in a couple of weeks. But the end of the summer, he and Hellman had only written one act and other deadlines had appeared and they both rejected the lyrics That had been written by another lyricist. So, guess who got the job for West Side Story? Uh, Cole Porter. You're right. Yay, I win. (laughs) The guy from Wham! Am I close? No. Andrew (laughs) Wrigley? (laughs) Ridgely.
1: Yes, like the ballpark. Andrew (laughs) Wrigley.
3: I don't know this man is on my, (laughs) my holidays. So, let's talk about West Side Story. That's
1: the name of the musical.
3: Yes, it is. It was his first foray onto the Broadway stage, and that was 1957. He was just 27 when it was opened. Like, that makes you think, what the crap have I done with my life?
1: Isn't that what um, they said in Tick, Tick, Boom? Like, by the time he was 27, by the
3: time he was 27. he keeps it yeah. yeah. Yeah, and 30 is his clock, yes. Mm-hmm. And we will be talking about Tick, Tick, Boom. Of course. If you think you're going to sneak away from this, un-Jonathan larson you are so wrong. You don't know L.D. very well. (laughs) So he was eager to start his Broadway career, but he wanted to be a composer and a lyricist, so he felt a little burned by this. He was convinced by Oscar to debut as the show's lyricist, which would be a junior member of the team comprised of three very well-known artists, which would be Leonard Bernstein, choreographer Jerome Robbins, and of course, the playwright, Arthur Lorenz. Together, they created an innovative musical transposing the fireworks and action of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, and they transposed it into 1950s New York City. But instead of having, like, the Capulets and the Benvolios...
1: The Montagues?
3: Yeah, whatever. The Jets and the Sharks are better.
1: The Benvolios (laughs) sound like a band that's playing at, like, Aqua Caliente right now.
3: (laughs) That is now my new... Somebody write that down. That's my new band name. The the Benchbolios. Benchbolios. <laughs> so instead of having those feuding families, they would have warring gangs, which is the Jets, who are the white teens, and the Sharks, who are the Puerto Ricans. So here's a breakdown of two of the songs. In, the song, Wait, what? in the song Maria, Sondheim followed the minimalist dictum of less is more. The repetition of Maria's name creates a romantic feeling of a person falling in love. So it's just... Maria. Yeah. Okay. What, what's the line? Um, I forget. I was drunk. Uh, was like Eddie Redmayne? Maria. God, Eddie Redmayne. I'm not going to talk about him right now. In Finish the Hat, the first of his two-volume set of collective lyrics and attendant commentaries, Sondheim recounted how he came to see the flaw in the song, I Feel Pretty. After mm. hearing the song run through at a musical tryout, Fiddler on the Roof lyricist Sheldon Harnick pointed out to Sondheim that a line like, It's alarming, how charming I feel, didn't seem right for a young Puerto Rican woman who was struggling with her English. He also noted that the phrase, an advanced state of shock, sounds strained, coming from Maria's friends. So he's basically saying, like, you need to learn how to contextualize your lyrics, because this doesn't seem like something someone like this would say. And I think looking back on it, I wouldn't have known that from Adam.
1: No, how would you? I mean, the experience is very different.
3: Yeah, you. Well, you, but I, I'm so used to it. <laughs> I'm so used to those lyrics, and it just feels right. Like my suspension of disbelief for some reason. I can't do it with normal films, but with Broadway musicals, I'm like, oh, yeah, of course. Everybody starts singing, and she's in an advanced state of shock. Whatever.
1: Well, I mean, it's it's like I say, write what you know. And I mean, that's not something Sondheim knew. I'm not knocking the guy. Look, I've written zero running Broadway musicals, so I'm just being you know, nitpicky at this point. Um, yeah, but it's, it, you know, how would he know about that experience or about those lyrics, the vernacular? He wouldn't, you know?
3: Mm-hmm. Now, Sondheim concurred that I have been aware of this myself and that the play on words in Pretty Wonderful Boy draws attention to the lyrics writer rather than the character but I had hoped that no one would notice anything but the cleverness of it. Hmm. I was wrong. In an event state of shock, I quickly wrote the lyrics to make it simpler and more in keeping with the way that Maria and the girls express themselves in the rest of the score. But my collaborators were having none of it. They liked it the way it was, and I have blushed ever since. So he, looking back on it, he tried to fix it, but being a junior member of this three-person triumvirate, he was kind of shouted down. So, Hmm. and not every collaborator was pleased. Arthur Lorenz never once minced words when he was alive, delivered his stinging version of the song in his memoirs. Original song, I Feel Pretty, was a prototypical Hammerstein and puzzle. Hardly what a Puerto Rican girl would sing out of the style of the show, but the audience loved it. They still do. And I still think it doesn't belong in the show. (laughs) Well, there you have it. So there you go. He didn't like it. When you're looking back at West Side Story, that is one of the standout songs. Yes. Cool is great if you know the the musical really well. But I Feel Pretty is like one of the first ones that girls learn to sing when they find West Side Story.
1: And I think it's one criticism against the musical is that the songs out of context, they
3: don't really stand on their own. I would tend to agree with you. Okay. Okay. Except for America is a gym yes. that it should be locked. It is just a joy. It's a celebration. It's oh, sassy. Again. It's fiery. I love it. Like it belongs where it belongs. It I is. haven't written
1: a single musical. So I'm just again outside looking in. I mean, I've always liked Officer Krupke when done well, which unfortunately the film did not. And that let me know.
3: Are you talking about the new one or the old one?
1: The new film. The one that was released um was oh, three, two or three years I've ago. Got- yeah.
3: No, that was like last year. Was
1: it? Jeez, oh, it feels like it was longer ago. But yeah, no no not the, not the original film. The original film I think did it very well. But Yeah, the...
3: I I have words about yeah. the new film which I really like not to get too far off of topic, <clears throat> but I feel like the original version of America on the Roof was perfect oh, yeah. because it showed you that they have to meet basically out of the public eye. They, they were on a roof. It was dark. It was night. And they're up there like celebrating and having fun and playing around. And it's, it's a beautiful expression to me. Mm-hmm. But it also said something about the times that they weren't free to just go out in the streets. And then when Spielberg got his hands on it, he put it in the street, in the daylight, in the neighborhood, and got like hundreds of people to dance. Like for mm-hmm. me, you took away the meaning of the song. Because here they are in the, in the original film and even the stage play, they're in the dark, they're having to hide. Yeah. And they're basically saying like, you know, this is the life that we live. And then in the new film, it was just like, it it, it took away from that feeling of alienation when you have a ton of dancers in the street stopping traffic and the kids and the water and like, you know, it's just for me, it it's was totally different. I will say Ariana DeBose is just a damn gem and just give her all of the roles because she is she's fantastic she's amazing love her and it was nothing that she did it wasn't on the cast for me it was on the direction so come at me if you want but that's my opinion now in 1957 the stage production of West Side Story Opened and it was, of course, directed by Jerome Robbins. It ran for 732 performances. And Sondheim again was expressing his dissatisfaction with the lyrics, saying that they don't always fit the character and sometimes it's too concisely poetic. While Mm -hmm. Bernstein was working on Candide, Sondheim reportedly wrote some of West Side Story's music off book. But Bernstein's co lyricist credit disappeared from West Side Story during its tryouts, possibly as a trade off. So Mm -hmm. it was I'll work on some of the lyrics without credit. You work on some of the music without credit. And I think that that was like a, a an okay thing. So A
1: gentleman's agreement, yeah.
3: Yes. Sondheim insisted that Bernstein told the producers to list him as the sole lyricist, which is kind of awesome. He described the division of royalties saying that he received 3% and that Sondheim received 1%. He suggested the evening of the percentage at 2%, but Sondheim refused because he wanted the credit, not the money. Hmm. Sondheim later said that he wished he had stuffed a handkerchief in his own mouth because it would have been nice to get that extra percentage. <laughs> now, talking about a review of the show, one review said, although the material is horrifying, the workmanship is admirable.
1: Well, there you go.
3: And that was a quote from Brooke Atkinson in his 1957 New York Times review of the original musical. <sighs> I've always been critical of my own work on West Side Story, he told 60 Minutes, correspondent Bill Whitaker. There are moments that embarrass me. I'll give you a poetic one. It says Tony in tonight. Today, the world was just an address. I thought, wait a minute, that sure sounds like he's been reading a lot to me. And I can't imagine a kid would say that. Having just met a girl and being, you know, the kind of kid he was, a street kid would come up with the phrase that fancy. Sondheim's acknowledged that the audience members may feel different, but he would love to take that line back. <laughs> when I hear it, I just look away and then I look back up at the stage. Sondheim said, it's not true for a lot of people who find it a very good line and enjoy it. I'm not going to argue with anybody, but you know, it's not modesty. If I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't write that line. I know better now.
1: Hey, LD, I'm sorry to cut in here, but we do need to take five to check in with our sponsors.
0: and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get
1: 50% off. Thank you, 5 We're back.
3: <laughs> All right. Back to Steven Sondheim. Sondheim, again, was involved in the Broadway production, collaborating with a pair of Tony winners and directors Ivan Ben-Hove and producer Scott Rudin. Hmm. Yeah, nope. Mm. Scott Mr. Rudin. Scott, yep, nope, yeah. Scott Rudin. Yeah. Nope. We will get into him at some point, but not right now. Don't time, don't time. After West Side Story opened, uh, Shove and Love lamented the lack of lowbrow comedy on Broadway and mentioned that maybe it was possible to make a musical based on Plautus Roman comedies. <laughs> Sondheim was interested at the idea, and he called his friend Larry Gelbert, who co-wrote the script. The show went through a number of drafts and it was interrupted briefly by Sondheim's Next Project. So we're going to get to that in the next episode. But just keep that that idea in the back of your mind because we got to get through two other shows before we get to that one. So before we take that musical detour, I would like to play a song that we literally just talked about. It's one of my favorite songs from the musical. West Side Story. So here we go with America. Hmm.
4: I know a boat you can get on (laughs) (laughs) Hundreds of flowers in full bloom Hundreds of people in each room (laughs) Automobile in America Chromium seal in America Wyatt for in America Very big deal in America all of them inside. <laughs> Immigrants go to America. Many hello in America. Nobody not in America. Puerto Rico in America. The shirt of America, Concord is yours in America, knock on the door in America, World the walls in America.
1: I mean, it. and again, we discussed the difference between the stage presentation and the film adaptation. Yeah. It's just it's, it's a great song. It does. It holds up. It's one of the ones when it does hold up on its own. Not every song does, but it, this one does.
3: Yeah. That's the only song that we're going to be playing from it. But like, if you haven't heard the entire soundtrack to West Side Story, please go give it a listen. It's really good. And it's very timely. Like it's, I think the message just like Shakespeare's original work that it's based on. It's just a story that works, you know? Yeah. Wasn't that the pitch, basically? Uh, Romeo and Juliet Manhattan? Yeah. yeah. I mean, Titanic was the same thing. It was Romeo yeah. and Juliet on a boat. So On a boat. That was the elevator pitch. So On a boat. Now, it should be said that West Side Story it has an enduring reputation, which came about because of the film that was made in 1961. It won numerous Academy Awards, including Best Picture and the... Gore became so popular because of the film's expansive and voluminous advertising campaign. Mm. I think it was like on the level that you would see blockbuster films being pitched now. It was a blockbuster before it was a blockbuster. The music critics had pronounced it interesting, but not hummable. And it turned out to be unforgettable because Sondheim pointed out that if people had a chance to hear it, and listen to it, then they would hum it. I mean... (laughs) Now, but the fact is, there's a chance that if it had never been turned into a film, it would have languished into obscurity because despite its reviews, it wasn't very successful. It got great critical press and people left in droves. He thought that the movie was made for people who don't usually go to musicals.
1: Hmm.
3: You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. It was a musical for people who don't go to musicals. One of the examples of what people genuinely thought about the play was that it didn't offer enough escapism because Mm. you're talking about two gangs set in the current time in the city that you're seeing the show. So people wanted a little bit of escapism and it was kind of experimental at the time. And so the original production starts like the film does with you know, the guy's snapping and whistling. And like two minutes in, there hasn't been any lyrics, no song, (laughs) no nothing. It's just been ballet dancing. And so he was actually attending one of the showings two minutes in, and he sees a guy at the rear of the orchestra going, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. And Sondheim thinks he's going to the bathroom and then he notices that he's got all of his stuff. He's got his coat over his arm, just going, excuse me, excuse me. And he came out to the aisle and looked directly at Sondheim. And he was like, oh, yeah, he knows I'm with the show because he just kind of was like, I'm sorry, and then left. <laughs> <laughs> and then the way that Sondheim looked at it is that this is a, probably a tired businessman on his way home to Worcestershire, Worcester, Worcestershire. The, Westchester? Are, no, nope there's a shire in this (laughs) the shire and he thinks i'm going to stop in and see a musical the curtain goes up and six ballet dancing juvenile delinquents in color coordinated state sneakers go dot 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 with their fingers (laughs) tapping he's like what the hell am i watching and i can't blame him i can't blame him but that's how i knew my career was in trouble (laughs) and that is of course a direct quote from steven sondheim that's funny after west side story Stephen was determined to make his mark as a composer. He didn't want to be identified as just the writer of lyrics only. Roger Englander said the lyricist is at the low end of all musical theater. No one ever remembers who wrote the words. Hmm. So a new opportunity came along that looked even more promising than West Side Story had. And it was a project based on the memoirs of striptease artist Gypsy Rose Lee. Ah, Here we go. The idea had originated with the producer, David Merrick, who had envisioned Ethel Merman in the central role of Gypsy Rose Lee's mother, Madam Rose. Merman's only failure in Broadway in a 33-year career had been her most recent show called Happy Hunting in 1956. Her most recent Broadway success, Call Me Madam, had been directed by Jerome Roberts all the way back in 1950. Robbins was brought in to direct and choreograph Gypsy by Merrick's co-producer, Leland Hayward. The team was being assembled, but Merrick was rebuffed in his attempts to recruit first Irving Berlin, who had written some of Herman's best songs, and then Cole Porter, who had done the same. And neither composer knew what to do with the idea. And of course, at the time, Cole Porter was extremely ill, like I had mm. said before. So. As the story of Gypsy goes, it's a little bit like this. Once author Lorenz talked to Gypsy Rose Lee, he realized from the things that she was saying to him that she had made up most of the things that were in her memoir. Every time he'd go talk to her, she'd have a different account of how she got into vaudeville and then how she moved to the burlesque stage, so he might as well just make up his own story. (laughs) It should be said, at this point, Arthur said that even though he and Robbins had not been on good terms during West Side Story— Robbins appeared to believe that he was the ideal choice as a writer. Robbins said that I was too grand for any of that trash. Speaking of Gypsy Roseley's memoirs. And then one day he was at a cocktail party and everybody was hammered. <laughs> Which, I mean, that seems about right. nineteen You know, early 1960s in New York City's theater district. And they started to talk about their first loves and their first lovers. And one girl said, my first lover was Gypsy Rosalie's mother. And that sparked his interest. He discovered that not only was she a lesbian, but she once got into a fight with the hotel manager who complained that there were too many people staying in her room, so she pushed him out of a window and killed him.
1: Uh, uh, uh,
3: so how could you resist uh, doing doing a musical based on that woman?
1: I know, what's, what's
3: not to love? I mean, there's stuff to sing about. <laughs> yeah. Now, the next wow. step would be to propose that Stephen become the composer and the lyricist, but there was one problem because they had already onboarded Ethel Merman and she had to agree. And the problem was that even though they had not met at this point, she already disliked Stephen and she wanted <laughs> someone more well-known. So because the rest of the team really wanted him and Ethel Merman didn't, he was kind of stuck between this like rock and a hard place. So he went to Oscar for advice and he said that the bad outweighed the good the advantages for writing for such a famous star really outweighed the drawbacks. So instead of writing for Madam Rose, he said, write for Ethel Merman. And according to Stephen, this turned out to be really useful uh, as far as information went, because when he wrote Company, he wrote Joanne for Elaine Stritch. And again, he wrote Love It to be played by Angela Lansbury. So he wanted to tailor the music to the person playing the character that he is envisioned, as opposed to writing a song and have that that actor fit into that bubble, mm-hmm. you write for that actor. Yeah, makes sense. And play to their strengths and shy away from their weaknesses. And somehow knowing this worked to his advantage because he was hired on as the lyricist for the show, writing alongside Jules Stein. So he spent the autumn of 1958 working on the lyrics for Gypsy and he spoke to author at least twice a day for about four months. And there were times where they just sit and talk about trivial matters. And then there were sometimes where they were talking about form and how to shape the piece. And this was apart from any meetings that would require all three of them to be in the same room together. And that was Arthur, Jewel, and Stephen. And sometimes this was in the room or over the phone, but then they would discuss it. And then Stephen would say, wait, there's a song in what you just said. Mm -hmm. But Stephen's actually giving Arthur all the credit for knowing where the song should be placed. Said, I realized after a long time that it was his playwright's instinct for knowing when a speech should rise and a speech should fall, or someone should talk in an elliptical sentence, and then when someone should talk in a complete sentence. And he is a true dramatist talent. In an interview for NPR journalist Terry Gross, he interviewed Stephen. I'm just going to read a small excerpt from this because I wish I could find a recording of this because it'd be really interesting. So, after West Side Story, you wrote the lyrics to Gypsy to music by Julie Stein. A song from Gypsy, I would like to talk about is some people, which is what Ethel Merman sang in the original production. You know, I love that opening line. Some people can get a thrill knitting sweaters and sitting still. Do you remember how that image came to you? Sondheim. No, but I set up a rhyming scheme there of inner rhymes because I wanted the song to speed along and an inner rhyme helps speed the lines. So the knitting and sitting becomes a pattern for the song. So no, not the image itself, but sure, you try to imagine what does an angry lady who wants to get out of a small town feel about the small town life around her, and what would conjure an image like that of conventional people be? Hmm. Gross. And when I say gross, I'm not saying gross. I'm saying the Arthur's. I'm saying the author's name. Gross. There are qualities you are writing for. Were there qualities that you were writing for, for Ethel Merman's voice? Now, you weren't writing the music for this, but you were writing the lyrics. But still, I mean, she's got a very distinct delivery. Sondheim, no. I mean, I knew we were writing for that kind of outsized personality that she's got. We assumed that she couldn't act because she had played all of her life in just these low comedy and brassy songs that wouldn't require her to act. And particularly at the end of the first act when she discovers that her daughter has Left Herm, and that she's going to make the other daughter fill the younger daughter's shoes, and make her into the star. And so I thought, if she can act in that moment, because, as you know, it's it's a huge moment, a woman facing a horrifying crisis, and bullying her way through it, and it becomes this big emotional moment. And I thought the way to do it was to give Ethel a kind of song that she sung all of her life, a big brassy number like "Blow Gabriel, Blow," and then let her be her lover and louise's her daughter whom she's focusing in on and reacting to and if they were in front of oh i don't I know a, a cobra i mean it's just completely terrifying and motionless and cowering and then the effect would be made because ethel wouldn't have to act because you would get an idea of the moment which is this express trained woman is now going to run over her other daughter and to our surprise and delight ethel could act but the song we wrote everything's coming up roses is an absolute imitation blow gabriel blow cole porter kind of or irving berlin or any of those Mm -hmm. brassy songs that they wrote for ethel to sing it's a real ethel merman song it requires no acting and that is the end of the interview it's a really interesting interview and i'll try to remember to link it in the show notes because it was a very interesting article but i should tell you that At this point, Ethel Merman had changed her attitude towards Stephen once she read the music and the lyrics for Everything's Coming Up Roses. At that point, she was like, all right, we're good. (laughs) (laughs) Gypsy opened up on May 21st, 1959 and ran for 702 performances. Crazy. The show was a hit and received eight Tony Award nominations, and Stephen was not yet 30. Again, my clock is ticking till thirty. Yes, yeah, seriously. Since Gypsy's premiere in 1959, Broadway has enjoyed four revivals to date, all of which has provided its own unique take on the musical and its character. Much of the show rests on the central casting of Rose. Each actress who takes on the challenge brings up something very, very different to the role. I'm going to read you some of the people that that took on the part because you'll see it is vocally similar, but characteristically very different. Mm. Gypsy first appeared in 1959 on Broadway under the title Gypsy a Musical Fable. Subsequent revivals subsequent revivals have starred Angela Lansbury in 1974, Tyne Daly in 1989, Bernadette Peters in 2003 and patty lapone <laughs> in 2008. Not that like, recently, wow. All of those are tour de force women no and then I'm going to get to somebody else in just a second, but the role of Rose is often called the King Lear of the musical theater canon. The show continues to be produ- produced by regional theater companies around the world and the whole of the U.S. A London production hasn't been seen on the West End since 1973, but that just changed Ooh. because a new revival starring Imelda Staunton. <gasps> uh, the OBE, 100. yes. Uh, is an Academy Award-nominated English actress best known for her performances in Harry Potter and the <laughs> <America laughs> Phoenix and Vera Drake. For the latter, she drew wide pre- widespread critical acclaim, earning a number of awards, including the BAFTA and Venice Film Festival Awards. So anyone who plays Rose cannot be a slouch. So Dame Imelda Staunton, correct? Yes, she is. Uh, she is one of the best worst people ever. Oh, she's horrible and it's wonderful. It's perfect. She's terrified mm-hmm. and d- d- just does the damn job. So she's good. amazing. So that's actually where we're going to end this episode. And the reason why we're going to end this episode here is because the next episode is probably going to be a little bit longer because we are going to get into some loss that mm-hmm. Stephen has to face over the next few years and some flops. So I, I wanted to end this on a fun note. <laughs> so we're actually going to wrap it up right here. Um, now, next week is not going to be Stephen Sondheim Part 3 because we are going to be doing something very special. It is mm. our January Slap Nuts. And I will tell you guys this right now. You're going to want to head over, if you're a fan of the show and you want to be a part of the show, head over to our Facebook, which I'm going to give in just a minute. And check out the posting on Monday, which I will be posting. That's going to be a Zoom link. We would like to invite anyone who is a fan of the show to hop on that Zoom link and just be prepared to chat with us. What do you love about the show? What do you hate about the show? What were your favorite moments? What's your favorite episodes? What episodes could you do without? What do you want
1: us to do? What do you
3: want us to do? Talk to us. So we are encouraging everybody who's a fan of the show to check out The Zoom link on Monday, it's going to be Tuesday. We're going to be recording our happy birthday on Tuesday. I believe we settled on 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Mm -hmm. We will give you all that link, but we would really love for you guys to come and join us. That would mean a lot for us. If you could come and just uh, share your thoughts with us and uh, help us celebrate our four-year birthday. Four years is crazy. Yeah, 4 years. Oh my god. So much is <laughs> so much has changed. We were different people. No, literally, we were different people. Yes, no, we absolutely were. <laughs> There's a completely different TJ. Yep. So, yeah, we'd love for you guys to join us and that information will be on our Facebook page and we'll probably also make an announcement on tiktok as well if you're over there on tiktok so i wonder
1: if the giggling hillbilly will be there we'll see
3: oh god if he shows up or she shows up yeah. you know, i would love to know who the giggling hillbilly is this is oh, still please. a question if you were giggling ben, hillbilly. Just, <laughs> please hop on please please stand up all right so here's our social stuff if you think that we're doing a good job and why wouldn't you and this i just stand-up performance, you can uh, go toss a coin to your Witcher at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. Our Twitter is rock and roll LT. Don't even bother going there. I don't even know why I say this anymore. <laughs> That's a desert hellscape that we don't really <laughs> post on anymore. You can check us out on Instagram, though, at rock and roll heaven LT. Our Facebook, which please, again, hop over there, check us out. You'll see the Zoom link appear there on Monday. And that is rock and Roll Heaven Pod. Our website, Rock and Roll Heaven. Oh, you guys actually thought I was going to do it, didn't you?
1: (laughs) I was full. you had me.
3: (laughs) And you can email us at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. And please, guys, as always, make sure to check out all the other awesome Pantheon Podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com. And we also have... A uh, rocket pod that's going to be happening in, I think, March or no, May. It's early, I can't remember. Mid March, right? Yes, but we will be appearing there. So at least two yeah. out of three of your hosts of Rock and Roll Heaven will be at Rocket Pod in Nashville. So as soon as there we you. find out more info about that, we'll start sharing that as well, so you can grab your tickets. I don't even know what we're doing. So woot! <laughs> I
1: thought we we're going to be our normal, charming selves.
3: Probably. Oh yeah. And by the way, Manfred Mann's Earth Band.
4: Yay!
2: <laughs> tom ladies and gentlemen i am tom mcginnis and that was your federally mandated Manfred man reference of the podcast i hope you
1: are satisfied and that is still something that i will treasure for the rest of my life
3: as will i um, so tom, guys be best. please make sure to check us out Next week, when we do our birthday party January slap nuts, uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. We don't have anything planned so far, so I probably should get on that. But anyway, Mr. Will the Thrill, would you like to say anything to our audience?
1: I think TJ2 said it best. When he said,
3: Bye, everybody. All right, guys. Thanks again for listening to this episode. Check us out next week and we will see you all soon. So, what I'm going to end this episode on is the song that won Ethel Merman over so that Steven Sondheim could get hired for gypsy, which is everything's coming up roses. Have a safe weekend. We love you all. Talk to you next time.
4: I had a dream, a dream about you, baby. It's gonna come true, baby. They think that we're through, but baby, you how